four in Exodus 20 that are directly what Israel was supposed to do about God. We're not in Exodus 20, but I'm just summarizing something. There are four commandments about how Israel was to deal with God in the covenant document that established them as a nation. Four commandments for how you deal with God. And then six, the other six, that's 10 minus four is six commandments for how Israel was supposed to treat man for God's sake. Four about dealing directly with God and six about how that would direct your attention and treatment of other people like murder. That's about people, adultery. That's about another man's wife, about theft, about covetousness. These are things about how we interact with one another. But notice that nobody ever read the 10 commandments and thought, well, this isn't about God. The point is that these are how Israel was to treat people for God's sake. And so never misunderstand the balance. There is a balance in the spiritual life of dealing with one another and dealing with God. And the, the, the fact is that God is in every interaction because he's in you. You're not God. And that's a huge blasphemy to suggest man would become deified. It's a common blasphemy in new age and other uh, pop things that are out there. But, but God is in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you have Christ, then he's given you the Holy Spirit. And so you're supposed to be his agent in all interactions. And this is something we fail to do. We fail when it's me and another, we fail to bring God into the issue, into the, the matter. Well, if, the, if this goes forth, if this happens, then I'll be cheated and I'll lose out. This person will get away with something. Not if God's in the mix, not if you have God in the situation and you're trusting in him as you deal with her or him or them. And so this is something we try to embody and practice as a church family all the time. We try to keep our attention on God always. And then that means that he wants us to do certain things toward people for his sake. And it's worship to love one another as Christ has loved us is a worship act toward God, not toward man. And we have to keep that straight. You are powerful in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to do what God wants from you. And the big challenge everywhere you go in the New Testament is to love one another. The goal of our instruction is love, Paul says in 1 Timothy um, chapter 1. So today we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 in this service. We're going to talk about uh, 1 Timothy 3. Next hour will be in 4, 1 through 5. We're going to take two big steps through 1 Timothy today. And today we're answering the question, what is the local church? I love this study. I love today. I love what the word of God says about the local church in this passage. And it may be a familiar passage to it. I hope it is. And maybe we'll throw some technicolor on it um, from looking at it in its original language some. But we're going to ask the question and answer it. What is the local church? And I'll give you a hint. It's a subset of the universal church. It's the local expression and the only expression I believe that we'll ever see until the resurrection. The only, the only representation that you'll ever see of the universal church will be a local expression, an independent individual local church. It's your access to participation in the body of Christ by, by God's protocol, by God's design. So what is the local church? Let's read first Timothy chapter three, verses 14 through 16. I'll read it in the new American standard. You can follow here in your Bible. I'm writing these things to you, all that Paul has written, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth by common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A great way Paul summarizes, he'll come to these conclusions, these summary little conclusions in his sections. And the next section is a different topic. He concludes with a summary of Christology of who Jesus Christ is and where he is and, and what we proclaim when we focus on the truth of the Christian message. God took on flesh. Jesus Christ came into the world and died for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead. So let's break it down. Let's look at it in some detail. In verse 14, he says, these things, Tata, these things to you, I am writing, though hoping to come to you soon. So I'm writing you this note in the event 
that I'm not able to be with you. Elpidzo, to desire, to confidently expect, to hope. This is an interesting use of elpidzo or to hope because usually it means I expect it. I'm expecting that what God said he would do, he will do. And so my faith has gone, has, you know, has kind of hardened into hope, into an expectation. That's what hope usually means. In this case, it's a little bit different. I'm expecting in a more of a uncertain sense. I'm expecting to come to you. Now, why does he expect that? Because as far as he knows, in terms of all that he has understood about his mission and what God is doing with him and what he's doing with the Gentile churches, the, the Gentiles uh, the, outside of, of Israel, mostly populated in the beginning by Jews, of course, but I'm just saying in, in the Gentile world, as he goes through the Roman world, what Paul is, is, is thinking is based on everything I've seen, I'm going to be able to come see you. But Paul always has a sense of contingency in his plans. And it's right here. And we're not comfortable with contingency. I mean, I'm not comfortable with contingency. I don't know if you are. I suspect you're not. I don't like to be a fish on the hook. Is he ever going to reel me in? Let's get this over with. I don't like contingency. I want to know what's going to happen. Did you buy airline tickets? Yes. Are you going to fly? I think so. The other day I was, uh, I was approaching, um, uh, I was on time through security, ready to go get on my airplane, the safest place in the COVID world. They're flushing the air through that thing so fast. I don't think you can catch a cold there. So I'm, I'm waiting and you know, perfectly I'm, I'm on time. You're supposed, you're supposed to be two hours early at Dallas and they'll nail you if you're not. Like, oh, you weren't here two hours early. So I'm ready. I've got an hour and a half in front of me to, to work in my, my little chair waiting for the gate. And they say, well, the thing is that where you are is raining and where you're landing is snowing. And so we're going to have to take at least another hour before you can get off the ground here. And it was, it was a delay, an hour and a half. So what wasn't a 90 minute sit down and work was became a two, two and a half hour sit down and work. And I became contingent. I don't know if this is going to happen today. That's how it goes when you travel. You don't know. And Paul's talking about his travel plans. We don't know. And we want to know. I think that um, some of us turn into werewolves when we travel. <laughs> Back me up on this, ladies. Some of us turn into werewolves when we travel because of that sense of contingency, because we're stressing out, because we don't know how this is going to go. And it's all this work to get to this point, And we don't know if it's going to happen. And, uh, and it's just an extra layer of pressure. And Paul is saying, I don't know, but I hope, but in case I don't notice that he, he makes provision for contingency, I may not get to come to you. So I'm going to write. And that's why we have the new Testament. By the way, the new Testament epistles of Paul were written because Paul couldn't go and preach in person. The default setting for the apostolic teaching is face-to-face -face teaching, but we have the letters of the new Testament because I couldn't always get there. So it's provision in the event that we can't have face-to-face -face teaching. We do this as a church. You got the Wizard of Oz screen back there for Wednesday nights. If I can't be here in person, I'll be up on the, on the big head up there, I guess. We make provision in case we can't be there. And so there's a principle here in ministry, and I could spend the whole day on 1 Timothy 3.14, but this is a survey of 1 Timothy. So let's get for, uh, into verse 14, or verse 15. But if I should delay... And then he has this ellipsis, which we will supply with I'm writing to complete the grammar of the sentence. If I should delay, I'm writing so that you may know how it, how post, how it is necessary, which is a, 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 a rough way in English of saying how you must, how you should, how it's necessary in the household of God to conduct oneself. The household is this word oikos. Where is this word? Oikos. O-I-K-O-S in the dictionary form. It's in a dative here, so it doesn't show up in the dictionary form, but it's oikos. Oikos means house. And for 3,000 years at least, humans have known that there, is a, there are a couple of key uses of the word house. 3,000 years, I say, because of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David in his beautiful cedar mansion says, I'm going to build the Lord a house, a bet. And, they, and God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. David's sitting in his house. David is thinking of a nice temple for the Lord to live in instead of the tabernacle, the tent that's been, uh, they've been working with for 500 years. And the Lord says, no, 
I'm going to build you a dynasty, a household that is going to go on forever and ever and ever with your son sitting on his, on your throne, the Davidic covenant, second Samuel chapter seven. And it's this play on the word house house in, in, in David's mind is a physical structure, but house as God uses it to play on David's word and to bless David forever, to honor David forever because of his love of his, of, of God. He says, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a house, the house of David. It's, it's been this way. It's, it's very clear in the Hebrew text. That's what's going on there. We live in our houses, but friends, if you with little children go camping, then your household is with you out in a tent and the children need to mind their parents when they're out camping, even though you're not in your house because it's your household. And so oikos is used this way. House is used this way. It either means the physical structure or it means, can mean a dynasty like, like generational, the, the household of David, or it means uh, the family that lives in the household. And most of the time, this word is used in the New Testament. It's talking about that last one, the people, the household, the structural organization that happens to live under whatever roof they're in. The, the building becomes a symbol for the people. <sighs> Did anybody get, get up this morning and say, we're going to church? I did. Some of us said, I'm going to the church. And in our minds, we have this symbol in our head, this beautiful old salt box building, the church. It's been used that way in, in church history for at least a thousand years, that this is the church, the structure. And, and it is, it's the household meeting place. It's the house where the household assembles. But... The New Testament never means the building. The church, the Christians have called the building where the church assembles the church because it's a physical structure. We can see it and touch it. And so an idea creeps into our mind that this is some sort of sacred space. Well, it's sacred in as much as you are sacred and your body is the temple of the spirit. We together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's both the individual and the collective body of Christ. And so this building is special, but you are the church. So we... We try to make this distinction. We call it the old meeting house. We call it the church building, the church house. Something that distinguishes us, the people, from the physical building. Now, why do we need to make that distinction? Why do we need to say, I am the church and this is the building where I meet as the church? Why do we need to make that distinction? Because we're, um, as C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters, we're animals. We're part animal. We're physical. We're stuck in this body. And we're so intent on the concrete, the physical, the, the things that I can see and touch. And the union that you and I have is not by blood. We're not born of the same physical parents, but we're born again into the same body of Christ, the household of God. And so you can't see our union, but you see it practiced when we love one another, when we're self-sacrificial in our concern for the needs that God says we have one another. We love one another. And so this word house is awesome. The household I've translated the household of theos of God that you should, uh, on a strepho to conduct, to, to walk, to go forward, how you should live is, is a way you would say this today, how you should conduct yourself. On a is a word, this word to conduct yourself is a great word for the dynamics of life. You're never static. You're conducting yourself one way or the other. One way people conduct themselves with the church, the body of Christ is they avoid it. Well, that's a, that's a form of conduct, but it's not the right form of conduct. Another way people might uh, conduct themselves regarding the body of Christ is that they make it more important to be with the people then to, as Jesus demonstrated, take some time and, and, and get alone with God and prayer. It's more important to be with the people and people, 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 stuff, stuff, touch them, get a hug, be around the people, be seen, be reinforced, be reaffirmed by voices that I can hear from humans that'll look me in the eye. We're, again, we're, we're physical beings and the physical is very effective, very impactful for us. But I think it's a second priority to the first love that we would all of us individually and then collectively be connected to God. 
And so this is apostolic doctrine. The, the, the teaching Paul is giving is equipping us for conducting ourselves in the household of God, how you can conduct yourself. And then he, then he goes on a little bit of, a, of an expansion on what the household of God is, what the household of God is. You know, we go to church as a culture or what's left of the culture that I belong to. <laughs> we go to church as a culture because it's what we do. But when we learn and get some understanding about what the church is, we say, we assemble with God's people. That's the church. And I am the church and you are the church and we together make the church, not the clergy is the church. And you're coming to the clergy. We all together are part of the body of Christ. This is the New Testament teaching on the church. We don't do this because it's what we do. It's just the culture. We just go to church. That's not why we assemble when we go to first Timothy three. We're learning how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. That's the vital thing. And then listen to what he says about it. It's the church of the living God. Now that's the word church. We have it now. And there it is in Greek, ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia, ekklesia. You see this in, if, you, if you've never heard this word before, ekklesia, you see it all the time if you drive around uh, where there are Hispanic churches, churches that speak Spanish. They'll say Iglesia. It's a, that's Spanish for church because there's a connection between Greek to, to Latin to Romance languages like Spanish. Ecclesial. Ecclesial duties. That's people meaning church duties. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, misnamed. I'm convinced that's a bad name for the book of Kohelet. That's the Hebrew word for the book of Ecclesiastes. It was originally called Kohelet, written by Solomon. And they said, well, we don't know what a Kohelet is. So we'll say he's a preacher because uh, Kahal means to assemble. And so the preacher is the one that assembles everyone together. And then the first thing he says is meaningless, meaningless, says Kohelet. Everything is meaningless. So the preacher's preaching. He's assembled us to preach. And I don't think that's what Kohelet means, by the way, in Ecclesiastes. I, I don't think it means the preacher. So the, the ecclesiast, the pastor or the, the, the person at the church, <laughs> Kohelet means the guy that's putting it all together for you. He's, he's grabbing all, he's drawing a circle around everything and saying, if you don't have life beyond the sun with your creator, then you have nothing because it's all passing away. That's Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. Anyway, what is this? What is this word at church? It's been used. It's used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. The Greek of the Old Testament uses ecclesia in the Old Testament to describe the assembly of the congregation of those believers at Mount Sinai. Several places, it's the congregation. And so people will say, see, there's the church in the Old Testament. And I say, no, because what we're talking about here is the body of Christ, which did not exist until the Holy Spirit was given to us to start uniting us to Jesus Christ and what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in, for example, John chapter seven, uh, I believe verse 38, where the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. The church that we're talking about here are those that belong to God in Christ. And so it's a new work that God's been doing since 33 AD on the day of Pentecost. But this word ecclesia is a is a technical term in this case, the church of God that has a general meaning. It means the assembly. It just means the assembly never means a building. It means the assembly. You could do the etymology of it. Ek and klesia. Ek is out and klesia uh, is from the root meaning in Greek, meaning to call. And so the, the called out ones is how some will say, but it doesn't... The, the usage in Koine Greek does not take into account the calling out. It's not saying that it's not, it's not an election word. There's an election relationship to being part of the church, but it just means the people that are part of the assembly and that's us. And so now we're taking a look at ourselves. This is the mirror of the word of God saying, challenging us. Are you what God's word says you are when you say you are the church? Are you what God's word says you are when God's word calls you the church? We're, we're going to hear the standard, the expectation of being the body of Christ, being its local expression in this case, the local church. Are you that? 
Do you know what that is? Do you own that? Do you take pleasure? And I mean, pride and boasting in God and the Lord Jesus and what you get to be, to be the household of God, the church of the living God. And then he says, the adrima, uh, sorry, the stulos, that's the pillar. And adrioma, which is a rare word, and it means something like mainstay, or it could be foundation, but probably not, or the, the thing that holds it in place of the truth, the mainstay of the truth. This is a high calling to be called the pillar and mainstay of the truth. But I want you to notice something. If you read this, just kind of read through your Bible, like the church is the, the church of, the, of God or the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. If you just read through your Bible and you don't think about what it's saying about you, you will think of the church as those people, or you'll think of the church as that thing we do on Sunday or that building or something else besides me. This is us. We are the household of God and we therefore are the pillar and mainstay of the truth. Now in a context in first Timothy, we've had false teaching in chapter one. I'm writing so that you will correct false teachers. Now we're writing so that you'll conduct yourself in the household of God. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. The truth is a concept that should be a balm to our souls, especially in these days. I didn't say bomb. I said balm. The truth is what God thinks and being the creator and the omniscient and omnipotent God, what he construes to be the case. Today, it's popular in intellectual circles and political circles to draw a distinction between facts and truth. But we don't do that. We believe that facts correspond with the truth. A fact is a statement. By the way, a fact is, is a statement. This is the problem of, of our culture today is language games. Wittgenstein, language games. We're going we're gonna to mess with language and never end up with any truth. We're just going to wrap ourselves up in a ball of ideas. No. God has made us and so construed reality that we fit into his reality according to his design so that our language use can or cannot, either does or does not touch what he makes to be so. For example, let me give you an example of a truth that isn't a matter of my opinion. It's just how it is. God is. Deal with it. It's true whether you believe it or not, whether you feel that way. Well, that's your truth or my truth. No, God is. And Hebrews 6, 11, 6, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, you and I, if we want to come to God, and I mean, this is all the time. If you want to come to God, you must believe he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. This is, this is how we access God's truth. We believe him when he tells us. And we believe that if God tells us something, it's revelation. That's what the scriptures are. And revelation, if I have it by faith, then I have knowledge. I have actually come to know something that corresponds to absolute reality as God construes it. Now try to do that with your brain or your observation. Try to do that with your reason or your intuition or your mystical crystals or whatever. Try to do that without God's spirit telling you how it is. And according to his design of you, you trusting him according to what he said. This is Christian knowledge. And we have to be the pillar and mainstay of this truth of God's revelation. It's a pretty high calling. It's a heavy burden. And it's what you're supposed to be. They say leadership is best, the best leadership casts a vision. They'll misquote a passage, say without vision, there's no, the people have no, whatever. It, without the, the vision, people, fa people fail. That's not what we're talking about in modern leadership talk. But today, a leader has to cast a vision. He's supposed to, and it's, it's good. He's supposed to tell you the big picture of what we're going for. This is the objective. This is what we're focused on. This is the mission. And we'll make it very clear for you. And it's sufficiently broad that everybody can fit into it and sufficiently narrow that everybody knows we're doing the same job. That's the great commission. See the modern business stuff, business stuff and military affairs are ripping off the Bible. 
you know, the Bible tells you how to do like, you're all on the same mission. You all have the same power. We all have different jobs. That's the great commission and the body of Christ. But, but the vision that Paul casts here for Timothy to understand what the church is, this is heavy. I want to be fit to be part of this pillar, part of this mainstay of the truth. And beloved, that's going to be your faith. Every test in your life that God provides for you to grow through is a test of your faith. Every argument you can bring against whatever you're going through, and I just don't understand what's happening. Every time you're in that situation where your back is against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots are coming and you have no idea how you're going to get through, the answer is always faith. And faith, despite heavy circumstances, it's the heavy circumstances are going to get heavier as you grow. That's God's design. You, you don't lift on day one, what you're lifting on day 300. You're, you've grown, you've gotten stronger and you're going to get stronger still. And God is grooming you and preparing you for greater work in his coming kingdom. But beloved, this is the vision. Do you think of yourself as a legitimate and functional piece in the pillar and mainstay of the truth. Are you part of that representation? Do you own that? Is that your badge? Is that your garment that you're wearing that reveals God to the world? That you, not that you're telling everyone how it is, but that you know that you belong to the body that is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so you therefore are a representation of the truth and an upholding of the truth. I can't do this passage justice. I don't have the rhetorical skill. But I can cast a vision. I can show you that Paul's doing that. I have to confess to you. Hope you can too. There are days when I don't fit this like I should. But there are days where I'm not trusting God as I should. Let me give you an example of how that works. Not in just my life, in all of our lives. You know that God's word is where the riches are because he's telling you who he is. You know cognitively what the word is. And you also know you're going to get it on his terms. You're going to have to take time with it and think about it and pray about it and reflect on it. And that's work. And you know that that work is best done by yourself or, or in, a, in a moment of discipline, I mean, where you're focused on it. And you're not going to really get there with just a few minutes, it's going to take some time. And you know this and it's cognitive. And you're like, if I do this time in the word, if I spend the time in word and prayer, like I should, I know that I will grow like I need to and be equipped and refreshed and strengthened for the task that God has for me to do. And you know, all this is true. And you know that you set a time that you'd like to do that. And here the time is approaching. And there are other things that you might rather do in that moment. And you don't feel like it. I know I believe what the word is and I know I'm not there yet. I need to grow by what God has said. And I need to obey Peter's command to long for the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby, but maybe later and later never comes because if you don't mark out the time and discipline yourself to set, to, to plan and execute your plan, life happens. The distractions come and you can't, you can't get there. Well, I had a plan, but this came up. Turn off your phone. And if you don't turn off your phone, make sure you say the gospel a lot when your phone's on. We're going to be the pillar and mainstay of the truth in the United States under freedom with the First Amendment or without it. We're going to be the pillar and the mainstay of the truth under the uh, <clears throat> Herodian persecution that we read about the other night in uh, Acts chapter, was that 12? We're going to be the mainstay, pillar and mainstay of the truth in the Decene persecution when the Roman emperors start going after us or in the Diocletian persecution or in the Neronian persecution, which was before with Paul and he beheaded Paul. We're going to, we're going to be the pillar and mainstay of the truth regardless of what the map looks like, regardless of what language we say it in. 
Some people think that the, 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 the mission of the, of the gospel and the communication of God's word started as just as soon as those Anglican priests came up with, those scholars came up with the 1611 English translation. Thank God we could finally do God's work 1600 years into the body, into the church age. English is the newcomer. They had their King James Bible before. It was the Vulgate. It was Latin. Before that, the King James Bible was the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Everybody read their, their Greek Old Testament because everybody was reading Greek. They were Greek speakers. And then Latin took over and we got the Latin Vulgate. And everybody's reading their Latin Bible and they're preaching in Latin and lots of writing and all kinds of books written in Latin. And here we are down the road, way down the road, 1611. We finally have really 1560 is, a, is the first mass produced English Bible, the Geneva Bible. But in that era, the Reformation, we finally have the Bible in English and in German in the languages of Europe. We never had that before after, after Vulgate. And we, and wow, we're so glad that we can finally share, share, share Jesus. But the truth is that this is a newcomer thing, that we've got an English Bible and we're preaching English. And you, got to, you need to join the body of Christ and you're thinking through, through history. We have been persecuted and we have been telling the truth and, being, and, and been laughed at since Paul said to, to, to the Corinthians, we're fools to the world. And the foolishness of God makes the wisdom of the world uh, really, really look silly. And that's okay. They can consider us the scum of the earth. We'll be the dregs. We're the, we're the refuse. We're the rejection. We're the remnant because we're the body of Christ in a world that is rejecting him. I've, I've presented an opposition to you that you're in a war. You're the pillar and the mainstay of the truth in a world that knows better, but doesn't really know. It just thinks it knows. You're the pillar and the mainstay of the truth in a world that's directly opposed to the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. You're the pillar and the mainstay of the truth in this conflict. And here's the way this works, by the way, if you keep reading the scriptures, if you pay attention to what the Bible says and ask the question, what do I do with these people that are opposed to me? What am I supposed to do with Nero? Well, Paul under Nero, who eventually will kill him, says, pray for the Kings. In first Timothy, pray for the Kings in chapter two. What about lesser persecution. I'm not being set on fire at Nero's parties the way the Christians were in Nero's day. They're not putting us in the sports arenas, letting the lions loose, seeing how long we can last taking bets on who goes first and, uh, who, who, who gets, you know, who lasts the longest. Good, good, hearty fun killing those Christians. That's, that's, we're not facing that right now. No, it's the little subtle opposition. One of you prayed in school, in elementary school, and was corrected by your teacher and disciplined a couple of years ago. I was a witness to this happening. I mean, I didn't physically see it, but heard about it on the day of the event. Others will be laughed at and scoffed and mocked. Oh, please. Oh, here goes. Oh, Jesus. Here, we're going to hear about Jesus. And those people that are opposing you are not opposing you as much as the people screaming at the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross, prophesy who smote thee. If you're the, if you're the Christ, then come down off the cross and save yourself. We're not receiving that level of persecution. What did Jesus say about those people from the cross? What did Jesus say about those people that hated him and gritted their teeth at him? And from all their person, with all the, the moral force they had to bear, they just for God's sake wanted him to be destroyed. What did he say to the Lord, to his God, to the father about that? What did Jesus Christ, God, the son in the flesh say? He said, forgive them father, for they don't know what they're doing. And, and, and Stephen, the great deacon said the same thing. He said the same thing. Don't count this against them. We read in first Peter chapter two, we keep entrusting ourselves like Jesus did to the father who judges righteously. We don't revile in return. We don't ret return an insult. Because what we're really looking for is the compassion of our Savior on a lost world that is opposed to him. We're the pillar and support of the truth. And the truth isn't that sin isn't sin. That's the day that's, that's what they're really trying to force all the Christians to say. 
They're going to peel our fingers off of the truth and say, okay, whatever you want is okay because it's how you are. No, sin is sin, and that's the truth. And if you'll get a hold of that, you're on the way to being free because the truth sets you free. In verse 16, he says, And beyond question, great is the mystery of godliness. God was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness. <clears throat> my, my Bible that I'm looking at in the, the New American Standard says he was. He was revealed. And most, uh, King James, New King James, will say um, God was revealed. And this is one of the places where there's a big fight in the New Testament studies between which, which manuscript tradition is, is right. The majority of New Testament manuscripts that we have in Greek say God. The oldest ones that we've been able to dig up in Alexandria in Egypt say he. And now let's ask the theological question. What's the difference between God and he? He, Jesus Christ, is God the Son. And that would be more explicitly stated here if it's God. But it's still Jesus. It's about him. And so God the Son is what it means, was revealed in the flesh. And by the way, he was revealed in the flesh doesn't make any sense. Everybody's revealed in the flesh unless he's something beyond just the flesh. So the, the, the Alexandrian manuscripts, if you're, if you're even tracking what I'm saying, maybe you're not even tracking, don't worry about it. But if your Bible just says he, understand it's a reference to Jesus Christ as God the Son. And I think the, I think the manuscript evidence suggests that it's God was revealed in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. This word godliness is eusebia in Greek. It means good worship. When you're wondering, what, is, what do these Christians mean by godly? What's godly mean? Godly does not mean that you have a certain personality type that you associate with holy behavior. Godly doesn't mean you can't take a certain cast of a squinch of your eyes and a certain expression of placidity. That's not what godliness means. Or I'm in trouble. Most of you are in trouble. But I think we're godly in as much as we understand what godliness is. Listen to what the mystery of godliness says. It's the apostolic testimony, the eyewitness apostolic from the apostles testimony of Jesus Christ resurrected and glorified. So in Colossians 3, we keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in his glory. That's where our focus and our attention needs to reside. At the right hand of the Father, that's where our Savior is right now. This word eusebia comes from two pieces that get jammed together. Greek does this all the time. So does English, right? Withdraw. That's a word that has nothing to do with with or draw, but it's withdraw. Eusebia, butterfly neither right butterflies neither butter nor fly all right eusebia you is always good attractive beautiful lovely a euphonium a euphonium is a little tuba a uh, a baritone and they call it a euphonium because it makes a pretty sound i guess as a trumpet player i'm not so sure about that but a euphonium is good and sound eusebia is good and sabaya what's sabaya it means to worship it means to, to bend the knee. It means to worship someone. So it, it means good worship. So that's not me being like God so much as me being toward God as I should. I, if we're really going to do an English paraphrase, I'd say Godwardness more than godliness. It's not I'm acting, I'm acting like God. No, no, that, that, but, but understanding walking in righteousness, walking in the light as God is in the light and imitating our father. Yes. But this is how you worship him. It's good worship. And that's the sense, I think, every time you see this word godly or godliness in the New Testament. Great is the mystery of this worship of God. It is all focused on Jesus Christ. God was revealed in the flesh. This is what we call the incarnation. He emphasizes, and this is an old, this is a hymn that they're singing in Paul's day. It's a, it's a fragment, an excerpt from a hymn. He does this in several places. Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through probably verse uh, eight or nine is a hymn is a, is another one of these songs they're singing about Jesus. Notice that when Paul quotes hymns, usually it's about Jesus, 
the second person of the Trinity. And so he's doing that here. The doctrine of the incarnation is the first step in understanding what the entire Old Testament is pointing to. That man who fell and betrayed God, disobeyed God, got, got into this curse situation that we're still dealing with, would eventually, man would eventually bring restoration and it would be God providing himself a sacrifice in Genesis 22. God would incarnate, would become one of us. God who made us, who we read in Colossians, holding all things together by his powerful word. God would, in Hebrews chapter one as well, God would become one of us revealed in the flesh. This is what we call Christmas. The, the incarnation is the, when Jesus became one of us, when God the Son became one of us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Now this is dikaio, to be justified or to be vindicated, declared righteous, to be uh, cleared, possibly witnessed to, attested to. But this is a reference to the resurrection. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we read in Acts chapter 2, this is, and, and elsewhere, that the Holy Spirit is an agent in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It could also be a, res, a reference to his miracles, which he says are done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when they accuse him of casting out demons of the power of Satan, he says, that's called, you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The works that I'm doing are the works of God, the third person through me. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And this is the Spirit you've been given, the Holy Spirit, to work in you. That which God wants you to do vindicated by the spirit seen. This is an interesting statement seen by angels, seen by angels. Angels are looking into these things seen by angels. He was ministered to by angels in Gethsemane. There's angels all over his story and his, in the, in the life of Jesus Christ on earth seen by angels. And I believe this seeing goes along with the vindication of the spirit. When the angels are present at the resurrection, what are you doing here? He's gone. He's risen. He, he told you to meet him in Galilee. That's what he says on resurrection Sunday. Seen by angels. Preached among the nations. Now who's writing this? The apostle Paul. And who is he? He's the apostle to the nations or the, the same word Gentiles. So, so this same message, this apostolic message that we've been preaching through the Gentile Roman world, he was preached among the nations, believed on in the world. This is man's response. This is the Jewish response. The only legitimate Jewish response to Jesus Christ is to trust him. The only legitimate Gentile response to the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust him. And so that's what we are. We're the body of Christ, the people that trust him. See, this makes us the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus Christ. We have no stability except that we have a message that we've believed and we live and it's Jesus Christ himself and what he did for us. Believed on in the world and taken up into glory. The current residence of the resurrected humanity of Christ is at the right hand of the father in the throne room of heaven. Some, some thoughts about the conduct of our household. Some thoughts as we close. First, the purpose of the teaching in 1 Timothy is proper conduct in God's household. It doesn't say proper knowledge of doctrine. It says proper conduct to live it. Let's get that, let's get that notebook into our hearts. Let's get those propositions and principles that we believe that we're reinforced by, that we love to hear the teaching of the word. Let's get that into our hands and feet and do it. The conduct in the household. Second, this means the practice of apostolic teaching or doctrine dri drives the function of the local church. This is so vital. I'm going to do, I'm going to hold it up. It, the, the, what the apostles and the, and the inspiration of the spirit under the direct instruction of Jesus Christ with his delegated authority, what they tell us is supposed to drive everything we do. Well, that's just for in church. You are the church. I believe in the separation of church and state. Do you mean that as a member of the church, I can't be in the state? See, that, that secular definition from the letter to the Connecticut Baptist or whatever that's, that Thomas Jefferson wrote, a wall of separation between church and state, that's a miss. Jefferson doesn't even know what the church is. He thinks it's the, it's the, the denomination congregational that was enfranchised by the state of Connecticut. That's not what the church is in, in this passage. It's not a group that, that 
formally is recognized as multiple churches in one assembly or denomination. That's not a church. The church is the body of Christ and its local expression is the independent local assembly of believers like you are. But what's supposed to drive everything we do is the apostolic teaching. And, and if you've got your boxes where this is my church box, this is my life box, this is my, my fun box, this is my school box, this is my work box, and we don't, we don't mix the boxes. If, you, if you're that kind of person, and we all struggle with this in our culture, I think we, all cultures struggle with this. You need to let Jesus Christ be Lord. You need to submit to him because he is. I mean, you need to recognize it yourself and say, he's really my Savior and my Lord, and I need to walk with him and abide in him in everything I do so that he's not just the, the, the authority at church. He is, by the way, the authority of this church. The great shepherd and, and overseer of the flock is Jesus Christ in First Peter chapter 2. So everything we do is supposed to be driven by apostolic teaching. Third, the church of the living God refers to any local church, which is a subset of the universal body of Christ. That's a complicated doctrine. It's complicated, but I'll say it this way. Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ after the day of Pentecost is empowered and dwelled by God, the Holy Spirit. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in union with the body of Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. That's what forms the body of Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So any believer anywhere, you don't have to be in a local church to be part of the body of Christ. But the way that is expressed, the way you can see the body of Christ is not in the national day of prayer or the flagpole prayer that they used to do in school. I don't know if they still do or what. That's not how you see the body of Christ. That's not his protocol way. And it's certainly not some, you know, big, big organization with, uh, with Papa at the top and all the, all the hierarchical bishops. And all. That's not the, the, the visible, visible body of Christ. The way you see the expression and organization of the body of Christ until Jesus brings us all together and organizes us for his kingdom is the local assembly. There is no higher thing. That's the congregational principle. It's the baptistic principle. We dogmatically insist that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the conduct in the local church. Fourth apostolic doctrine is a protection against false teaching. It drives everything we do in chapter three. And so it's a protection against false teaching in chapter one, verses three through 11, as we've seen. This apostolic doctrine is the grace of God to man in chapter one, verses 12 through 17. In this proper household conduct, we find different roles for different people in chapters two and three. In chapter two, there's prayer and the conduct of men and the conduct of women. And your critical passage for us to understand the horror of American feminism or Western feminism, the horror of what we've done in stripping women of their glory and honor to be women. What we've done in this culture is very well addressed universally applicable because referencing creation in first Timothy chapter two, as we've seen, and you know, who's really good about teaching women that women, you know, who's really good about teaching women, the glory and joy of womanhood women. How did I get that idea? Where'd you, where in the world did you get that idea? Pastor Dave, that women need to help women understand to be women. Well, I'm always looking to shuck any responsibility I can, you know, and delegate anything to someone else. Right. No, I'm constantly reinventing the wheel and doing too much that I should delegate. I'm horrible at delegating. Now, the, um, the place I got the idea that women should teach women to be women is in first or only Titus chapter two, where you have the older women to the younger women. And it's not a Bible study per se. It's not a women get together. We're going to take notes and, and teach you Romans. That's not what Titus is talking about. Paul's talking about to Titus. He's telling Titus that the older women have to equip and be good teachers of soundness to the younger women so that they will be good wives and mothers so that, that the gospel won't be blasphemed. I got it from Paul. And so, so we have different jobs for different people, di different functions, different spiritual gifts and different roles in chapters two and three with what? With one mission. We all have one mission. Number seven. One mission. See, it's the mission statement is sufficiently broad that everybody has that with their gift, with their interest, with, with what God is doing in your life as he's growing you into the character of Christ and your personal, individual, unique instantiation of that. He is, 
He has got a sufficiently broad mission that you can do that. You can be part of it and have a significant, eternally valuable role in making disciples. But it's sufficiently narrow that we're not doing something besides making disciples. We're not taking on the cultural ills. That's not our mission. Disciples will be equipped to be salt and light in their culture, but that's not our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if our mission was to, to take on the culture and to, to fight, force everybody to, be, to, to, to do right or something, if that was our mission to read, as the, the progressive left is saying now, that the mission is for everybody is to, to, to fix everything. We're going to rearrange the furniture and destroy the evils of this country and the freedom and all that. That's not our mission. It's never been our mission. And you've got a lot of progressivism coming into what used to be Orthodox Christian teaching. A lot, of, a lot of pulpits are now spouting the, the insanity of our progressive time because they've forgotten their mission. The church makes disciples. The school can't do it. The government can't do it. You can't delegate this to anyone. The parachurch organization doesn't do it. It comes alongside and can, can provide experiences and you know, camp and stuff can help, but the church does this. And it's one mission. Eighth, our charter is to uphold the truth in this world of chaotic upheaval. That pillar word means that the tr you don't, you, you're not the source of the truth. You're the pillar the truth is resting on. You're the upholding of that truth in a world that is opposed to it. And finally, and last, and no more will I say, that truth focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ when he gets to the hymn at the end. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that is the focus of the truth. If you're ever wondering, well, what do we think about? What do we talk about? What? It's Jesus Get to know him, get to know more about him, get to know more about how he's the center of our confession with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice on the internet, catching this later, in the live stream, anyone here at present that doesn't know Jesus as your savior. We want to make the issue very clear to you. There's a lot of Noise, a lot of methods out there about how to share Christ. But the issue between you and God is your position in Adam and your problem with sin. We all have it. And the solution to personal sin is not to say, I won't do it. The solution to personal sin is not to stop sinning because you're not going to be able to. The solution to personal sin is not to make amends for your sin. The solution to our personal sin is that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is trusting him as your savior from your sins. The one who offers you eternal life, which is possible only if we're in righteousness as God is righteous. When you first believe in Christ, what happens is that God gives you his righteousness and it's by grace and only by grace. And all you do is trust in him. That is by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. He was received into glory and he is the only answer to the only real problem. We're all facing death. We're all facing loss. We're all facing the question of eternal or, or any kind of significance. And the only answer for all of these things is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among men under heaven where, where, whereby we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your son, for his work for us on the cross, for the gospel of salvation, which is simply to trust alone in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, we do trust in him. And we live within that faith. We live within the shadow of the cross. And we praise you for what you're building in us as we continually pay attention to him. Father, keep our focus, our occupation on your son. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, Jesus name, we all said, amen. amen.